Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Uh, I'm going to invite you to turn to Judges chapter 6 as we finish the series on the names of God today. We're going to be looking at the name Jehovah Shalom, the Lord who is my peace. Some of you might look at the circumstances of your life and say, I can't say that I've known a lot of peace in my life. You might look at the circumstances of your life and say, in fact, what I've known is quite a bit of chaos and drama. Uh, A number of you, if I said raise your hands, your hands would go up with that. You would say, yeah, that's been true. Well, that would also be true of the people that we're talking about today. But I also want us to understand what Scripture means when it talks about God as your peace. And for some of us, I think we've been missing the mark on that. And so I hope that we dial in and see what it is that God wants to teach us today as we look at Judges chapter 6. Let me give you a little bit of background so you can understand what's happening in the passage that we're talking about today. Uh, If you go back in both Judges chapter 4 and Judges chapter 5, specifically Judges chapter 5 verse 31, it talks about the 40 years of rest. Doesn't that sound awesome? Yeah, I rested for 40 years. That's great. Well, but the, the, the time of rest came after the defeat of a guy named Sisera. And I know you're wondering who Sisera is. These, you know, Scripture will mention these people. And you're like, who's that? What did they do? Why, why have they been mentioning him? Well, Sisera was the leader of the Canaanites. And he had amassed a, a pretty huge army. It was it really, it was impressive. It was described that he had over 900 chariots. You need to understand, back then, that's a big deal, Right? Uh, the Israelites also, by the way, they were scared of his camels. I'm still trying to figure that out, right? But he had a lot of camels and a lot of chariots. In Judges chapter 4, verse 3, it said that Sisera cruelly oppressed Israel. It wasn't just an economic oppression. It was a physical and spiritual oppression of the Israelites. And so there comes this time where the Israelites are going to go to battle with this group. Now, you're probably thinking, that's a big army. It hasn't gone well for you so far. But God goes in front of them. And if you're thinking of chariots, you know, and that's something you don't have, you probably already think that you're set up to lose. But in the midst of the battle, God sends a flood. And when the flood hits, it basically renders the chariots absolutely useless. And then the people of God go out, and they defeat Sisera and the army. That's a good day, isn't it? Especially if you've been known as being cruelly oppressed by this guy. The cruel oppression has finally come to an end. So their army is disabled, but Sisera kind of sneaks away. And when he sneaks away, he kind of goes out into the wilderness and he runs into this lady named Jael. And he goes into Jael's tent. And when he goes into Jael's tent, he says, you know, I'm hoping that you could show me some hospitality. And she says, oh, I'll show you some hospitality. And he says, I was hoping that maybe you could give me some water. And she goes, I'll one-up it, man. I'll give you some milk. Now, that sounds great, right? And so she does, and he takes the milk. And then, of course, he goes into a little bit of a nap. And when he goes into a little bit of a nap, that's when she drives a tent peg through his head. That is in your Bible, people. Sisera didn't make it, did he? Now, all of that is what leads up to this passage that we're talking about here In Judges chapter 6, because finally you have someone that is an enemy and an oppressor that has been defeated, 
How do you think you would react to that when God has sent a flood, defeated your enemy? You would like to think that you would respond with an incredible energy because you see what God has done for you. You would respond to the goodness of his mercy to you. And maybe you would do that for a little while. The question that I have for you today is that something that you would do for a long while because Israel didn't. So they described the 40 years of peace and rest following the defeat of Sisera, but that eventually comes to an end. And the reason that it comes to an end is because Israel, after the oppression, they see incredible prosperity. Now, there's nothing wrong with prosperity. The problem was is that the prosperity led to complacency. And that just wasn't fit for what God had just done for them. Prosperous, fine. Complacent, not. And the result you see in Judges chapter 6 verse 1 was this. And the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord handed them over to Midian for seven years. Well, so much for the 40 years of rest, right? Now you get to go be oppressed by different people group. See, God let the enemy win instead of Israel winning in the promised land. They're in the promised land. And in spite of that, God says, I'm going to hand you over to the Midianites. And what this reminds us of is this. You can be in the promised land and at the same time out of the will of God. And you can be in the place of God and simultaneously smack out of the will of God, which is exactly where Israel was. And that just seems strange because the enemies of God are allowed to hold the people of God hostage for seven years. Does that seem strange to you? Now, this isn't unique. This has happened before. You know, God will bring judgment on the Canaanites, but God also brings judgment down on his own people because at the end of the day, what God is about is not your convenience. He isn't gonna be in line with your complacency. He's not here primarily to give you happiness with the way that you describe it. He's here to make you holy. That is what God wants from you. That is the fitting response to what God has done for us. Now, how bad was it? I mean, they're given over to the Midianites, but if they're given over to the Midianites and the Midianites aren't that bad, then you go, well, I mean, okay. No, they were bad. And you see this picking up in verse two. It says, because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east, they came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They and their camels were without number, and they entered the land to lay waste to it. So Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord, that's bad. You know, how bad was it? It was that bad. You go to plant a crop and they're going to come in and destroy your crop. They didn't want you eating. They didn't want you drinking. They wanted you that oppressed. Now, they had known this not too long before, right? And God had already delivered them from that before. And they find themselves in this situation yet again. And then you see this in verses 11 and 12. It says, and then the angel of the Lord. And then the angel of the Lord came. And he sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite. 
His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. In other words, what Gideon is doing is he's in a hidden place threshing things so that maybe they won't find it so that they will have something to eat. That's what Gideon is doing. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. All right, now there are a couple of things here. One is that the angel of the Lord shows up and says, I got a message for you. That wasn't something that Gideon was expecting. He's expecting to basically be in the wine press doing some threshing, right? But the angel of the Lord appears to him. The other thing is the way that the angel of the Lord describes him. He says, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Now that had to catch Gideon's attention because he's not a valiant warrior, at least not yet. He's a guy that works in a wine press. He's not a valiant warrior. This is what, in other words, God is going to make him to become. The angel has given him a word in advance. God is pulling you aside and he's going to do something extraordinary through you. Now, how would you respond to that? I, I am a valiant warrior and finally somebody sees it, right? Well, I mean, that's not the way he responded. I mean, if you look in verse 13, Gideon says, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? If you're really with us, why this? And where are all of the wonders that our ancestors told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? And by the way, the answer is yes. But, but now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian? Oh, where's the Lord in this mess? Notice what he didn't say. What do you want me to do? He has a message from the Lord and his reaction is, hey, what's up with you? What's going on around here? God's dropping the ball. This place is a mess. We don't even have snacks. The Midianites are awful. Now, I bring all this up because isn't that what we ask too? Like right when we get into the thick of a difficult time, don't we ask the same things? Where are you at? What are you doing? And that second question, what are you doing? Even if, even if God gave us the answer, we probably wouldn't accept it anyway. You know why? Is because what we want is what we want. And God is here to say, no, I'm trying to give you something that's better than what you want. I love what Tony Evans said. Because even though we say, if God is on my side, why am I in this mess? Tony Evans says, well, God is on your side. God is on your side in a general sense. In a general sense, he's on your side because you are his children. However, uh, God is with us in the specific sense when we are in him. That is when we are in his way of life then we know that God is with us. Here's another way of understanding it. If you're not with him, you will not experience him being with you. When you walk away from God, it creates a space. Just like if you walk away from any relationship, skip the God relationship for a second. If you walk away from your husband, it creates a space there. If you walk away from your wife, it creates a space there. If you walk away and desert your family, it creates a space there. Did you know that it is absolutely no different when you walk away from God? It creates a space there. If I, I'm not going to, but if I were to walk away from Wendy today, you know what I don't get? I don't get Wendy's presence. I walked away from it. And I don't mean gifts. I mean literally her presence in my life. I've walked away from it. And Israel had walked away from it. And now what they're doing is feeling what it's like to not have God's presence. And here's what they're given. I don't like it. Now, the angel of the Lord could have said, what did you think was going to happen? 
But it's not how the angel of the Lord replied. Instead, you see in verse 14, it says, The Lord replies, The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian because I'm sending you. I'm sending you. So he calls a man that is doing very ordinary things to accomplish a pretty incredible task. How do you think Gideon felt? I mean, God was going to use a man that still couldn't wrap his head around what was going on. And even though God is calling him out and portioning him for a task, he's sitting here jabbering about questions that he's got. That's what's happening here. Gideon replies, probably like I would, he says this, I need to be sure about this. And you get a glimpse into his mind with things like what you see in verse 15. He said to him, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? How can I do that? Now, you've already had Israel delivered before. It's not like they don't have the story passed from generation to generation about the great things that God has done, the great leaders that God has risen out of like nowhere, it seems. And here's Gideon saying the same thing. How is this even going to work? And God's in there going, like before? Like before. It's just you're the guy this time. How can I deliver Israel? And then I love this because he goes, Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh. What if his family is sitting there when this conversation is going on, right? How insulting is this? Our family, we're weak cheese, man. You need to call out the guys who are like ripped and whatnot. You're calling out me. We're the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the youngest in the family. None of this makes sense. You should be calling out the older folk, the older brothers. But you come to me. And here's God's answer in verse 16. He says, but I'll be with you. But I'll be with you. Let me ask you this question. How many of you would sit there and after hearing that, you go, you know what? It's all I needed. Let's go. How many of you would respond like that? Because he follows up and says, you will strike Midian down as if it were one man. I'm with you. Is that enough for you? Or do you need a little something more? Now, I ask that for a reason because it sounds great so far, right? I'm with you. And Gideon is like, I have an idea. And you see this in verse 17. He says to him, if I found favor with you, give me a sign that you're speaking with me. Please do not leave this place until I return to you. Let me bring my gift and set it before you. I heard you, I just want some verification. Now, how many of you are more like that than the first person that I talked about? I'm with you. Enough said. Enough said. It wasn't enough for Gideon. And this is what you see in verses 19 and 20. So Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from about a half a bushel of flour he placed the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot, brought them out, offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat with the unleavened bread, put it on the stone, pour the broth on it. And so he did it. By the way, it makes it really wet, right? And then the angel of the Lord extended the tip of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire came up from the rock, consumed the meat and the unleavened bread, and then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. That's got to be cool. 
It's also got to be terrifying too, right? He's like, I want to put a test in front of you. And everything, it's consumed. Angel of the Lord is gone. What do you think Gideon's sitting there doing now? Well, he said, here's a test. Lord answered, is that enough? Well, for Gideon, the answer was yes. At that moment, he goes, this is real. I mean, this is real. He asked God to do something to overcome his doubts because sometimes you're not sure and Gideon wasn't sure. And so Gideon says this in verse 22. It says, when Gideon realized that he, uh, that he, the other, was the angel of the Lord, he said, oh no, Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now, the reason he says that, just so you know, is because every time somebody encounters something like an angel, it's like absolute dread and fear. And you even see this in the New Testament. The angels will appear to someone and was like, don't be afraid. Like, I'm not here to hurt you, but I do have something to tell you. And you probably have an assignment, right? It was no different with Gideon. And then the moment something is revealed about God, you see in verse 23, it says, but the Lord said to him, peace to you, peace Don't be afraid because you're not going to die. And so Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and he called it, the Lord is shalom. The Lord is peace. He's it. So the word shalom, what does it mean? For those of you that are sitting out there this morning, for those of you that are watching online this morning and you say it's been a long time since I have experienced peace, the question this morning is what is peace? And the word peace actually means to be whole or complete. That's what it means, that you are whole or complete. Things are well-ordered. That is, you have well-being in spite of your circumstances. That is because me and God are on the same page, you have peace. Did you notice this? Peace is not usually easy to come by. You usually have to work for it. Did you know that in order for there to be peace, With the Midianites, there was first a battle. And did you know that in some of your relationships, in order for there to be peace that is there, you might have to broker it. You might have to work for it. You might have to reorder it. Maybe your marriage is struggling. Maybe your friendships are struggling. Maybe what is lacking in peace is because you don't have anything well-ordered there. And as a result, one is going one way, one is going the other way, and you feel the break everywhere around you. Peace is the opposite of all of that. Things are well, even if your circumstances haven't changed. It's well. Did you notice at this point in the life of Gideon, nothing's changed. Did you notice that the Midianites are like still out there? And he's building an altar. He says, the Lord is peace. Well, if peace is so great, how do I get it? I know you're wanting to know that, right? If it's so good, how do I get it? Well, the question, how did Gideon get it? And how did he get it? And the answer is he got peace when he knew, like really knew that the Lord was with him. Did you catch it on the front end? I'm with you. Well, I've got a test for you. Like when he finally soaked it in that God was with him, that was all he needed. That was it. 
Even though he hasn't fought the Midianites yet, he builds an altar. He has a worship service before the problem is even addressed. You, you can be worshiping in the midst of a time like this. If Gideon can do it, so can you. The situation is the same, but personally he realizes God's presence in a way that he never has before. And the result for Gideon was a contented soul. It's good. It's good. Battle's still out there. And then it's time for battle. And here's what Gideon thinks. Okay, so if we're going to fight, I'm going to need about 34,000 soldiers-ish. And then we're going to take the battle to them. You know why, guys? Because God is with us, and I'm going to lead you. Notice, valiant warrior, he's becoming. And God says, nah, it's too many. You don't need 34,000. Let's go with, I don't know, I like even numbers. Let's go with 300. Take 300 of them, and the job is going to get done. Now, if you, if you kind of jump ahead, you go to, to chapter 7. What Gideon does is he kind of sneaks over. You know, he's, he's doing some reconnaissance work and he sneaks over and he starts listening in to the Midianites and the conversations that they're having in chapter seven. And basically what he's hearing the Midianites say is, we're about to get whooped. And this is coming from people that have been doing the whooping for a while, right? We are about to get took. And you go, Gideon's going, why are they feeling this way? We haven't beaten them yet. It's because the Lord is already going before him. I mean, another way that you say it, he's messing with them. Preparing them for the whooping that they're about to get. Gideon hears it. But that was the key to peace. Is to know God the way that Gideon knows him here. But then the question becomes, okay, if, if I can experience peace by having God in my life the way that Gideon had him, then how do I have God with me? How does that work? And I think you find a good answer to this in Romans chapter 8, verse 6. It's a simple but a powerful verse. Paul said this, he said, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You're going to set your mind one of two ways, and you are. You're either setting your mind on your flesh, which is going to lead to death, or you're going to set your mind on the spirit of God, which will lead to peace. Uh, For some of you, you're trying to set your mind on two things how I can set my mind on the flesh and yet still have the full experience and participation of God in my life. And I want you to remember this. If you walk away from God, you created a space there. It doesn't work like that. You can't have it both ways. Paul says you're setting your mind one of two ways. Let me, let me talk about that for a second. I was thinking about this example this week. Um, this was some years ago. Avery, my oldest, was a toddler. Wendy was in nursing school. Um, and so she was having to do a full load of classes. She was also doing her preceptorship, which meant that she was doing shifts at the hospital for no pay. That's what it means. So she's working over at the hospital. Avery's really, really little. Now I'm working on my PhD. So I was doing a full load of doctoral seminars at A&M. Uh, and I was also working two jobs. Uh, I was also the primary caregiver of Avery because Wendy was doing her preceptorship and her classes. Now, I had to do most of my work uh, at night. So I, I was working all through the day. And by work, I mean I was having to do my studying at night. And I was usually getting to bed somewhere in the range of about 1 to 2 in the morning. Now the catch was at 5.50 a.m. every morning, uh, there was going to be this little uh, strawberry blonde haired girl 
corkscrew curl hair at that time that was going to be standing next to my bed looking me in the face. And I'm telling you, pay attention, like clockwork. Like clockwork. And I would be out of it. And I'm like this, and my eyes would kind of pop open. And Avery was always like right there. She wasn't talking. She was just right there. Blanket like this, and she's just looking at me. And my eyes would open, and I would look at her, and I'm disoriented. And I would look, she would see my eyes are open, and she'd go, chocolate milk. <laughs> that, that was a morning routine, friends. 5.50 in the morning. Now, why do I give you that example? Um, well, after a while, I got to be honest with you, my sleep rhythms started to change a little bit, right? I mean, before we had Avery, we could kind of jumble things around a little bit. You could catch up on sleep over here. You know what I'm saying? Or what? You could go to bed late, sleep in late, or you could go to bed early, get up early, whatever the day meant. That was over. That was done. My sleep rhythms were set by a consistent interaction with Avery. And here's what happened over time. I just started waking up at that time naturally. Actually, I started waking up at about 5.49 in the morning every morning. It did not matter how tired I was. My eyes would go boop, and either she would be there or she was coming in. But it was like clockwork. Now, here's the reason I give this example. is because before Avery, I just had a different flow to my life. I just did. And her coming my way every morning gave a different flow to what I was used to. I would love to tell you that that was an easy transition for me, but I'd be lying to you and God's in the space. I'm not going to do it. It was brutal. It was brutal, but it became normal to me. It became normal. And I want to suggest this to you this morning. Spiritually, it's, a, it's absolutely the same way. Paul says in Romans 8, 6, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Spiritually, the same is true. Your experience with God needs to be so consistent it needs to be so routine that he breaks through and he creates a whole new rhythm for your spiritual life. And that means you have to create the space for God to do that, just like Avery created the space for me to have a new flow. For me, it was only through direct, real experience on a consistent basis that I had a new pattern for my life. It will be no different with you and Jesus. You have to have a consistent pattern. On the front end, no doubt, it whooped me. However, after a while, it's just normal. And when my new routine, by the way, got broken up, it was weird to me. That got weird to me. And spiritually, the same will be true for you. Spiritually, your patterns for life will only change when you have that continued experience of God. And when the new flow in your spiritual life is real and you feel a change from it, that's weird to you then. You know what would have been weird to me is if I slept till eight in the morning, even though before that was normal. After that, if I slept till eight, I was groggy. No joke. Spiritually, it's the exact same way. Once you have that new flow, you will feel the difference when you shift from it. And it won't settle with your spirit. And that's the beauty of the flow. I mean, when you're saying, how do I know that God is with me? How do I have God with me? Scripture is telling you how. This is it. So when we set our minds on the flesh, the things of the flesh seem very normal to us. That's just your flow. However, when you set your mind on the spirit, the things of God, they become normal to you. That becomes your flow. So for Paul, when we know and practice the mind of God, not just know it, we don't want you to be smart sinners. 
It's not the goal here. It is when you know and practice the mind of God, you have the presence of God with you. And when you have the presence of God, you get the peace of God. That's the way it works. After all, God gives us commands for at least two reasons. To show us how to live a blessed life and to show us how to love him well. You know, Wendy is no different. If, if Wendy were to say, hey, listen, I just want us to spend some time together. She's tipping something here. She's showing me how I can love her well. And when God is communicating something to us, he's showing us how we can love him well. So maybe like Gideon, your circumstances haven't changed. That doesn't matter. Just like him, you can still have peace. You can still have peace. You can still be whole or complete even when everything in the world around you is drama. And just so you know, we have a motto in our home, no drama. But you can't control the world like that. But you can still have peace. Have you ever noticed in the beginning of Paul's letters, it's often called the salutations. That's the hello, right? When you're writing the letter, it's called the salutations. Have you ever noticed in all of his letters, he addresses the churches he's writing with the words grace and peace in every one of his letters. And he puts it in that order for a reason. It's on purpose. It's because when you have the grace of God, you have peace with God. Grace brings peace. The question is, are we living in grace or are we not? And I love what Tim Keller, he wrote a book called Generous Justice, and he was talking about peace. He was talking about shalom. And here's what he said. He said, God created all things to be in a beautiful, harmonious, interdependent, knitted, webbed relationship to one another. Just as rightly related physical elements form a cosmos or a tapestry, so rightly related human beings form a community. The interwovenness is what the Bible calls shalom or a harmonious peace. Shalom means complete reconciliation, a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension, physical, emotional, social, and spiritual, because all relationships are right and they're perfect and they're filled with joy. This is what God created us for. But I was reminded of a pretty deep truth from Philip Yancey this week. And he was talking about grace and reflection of his experience with God. And he said, Grace doesn't depend on what we have done for God, but rather what God has done for us. Ask people what they must do to get to heaven, and most reply, be good. Be good. And I just want to know, I want you to know, when I talk with a lot of people in our community, I ask that question, they say the same thing. I think I'm just supposed to be a good person. Okay. But here's what Yancey says. Jesus' stories contradict that answer because all we can cry out is help. Help. And he said this. He said, because grace, grace like water, flows to the lowest point. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? So my prayer for you this week is that you would not just know the word of God, but that you would practice the word of God so that you can experience the full peace of God. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.